Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the Poisons and Pestilence podcast, The M Device, with Simon Jones. Simon, it's it's really wonderful to, to have you on the show today and I'm really excited to be talking about this issue which fascinates me and also is an issue I think that many people won't be aware of. It's a, it's a, it's a certain story of a certain part of history that's been buried and forgotten. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and then what we're going to be talking about today. Okay, well, thanks for um, having me on, Brett. It's, it's really nice to be here and to be talking about something, a subject that I have been really interested in for a very long time. And this particular story came about in the early 1980s. And I started going to um, National Archives and I wanted to research the history of gas masks in the First World War because I was I got really into the First World War and this was something I couldn't really find uh, much anything published about. And I realised that at the National Archives there were boxes and boxes of files about chemical warfare in the First World War, mostly about the defensive side. So I kind of focused on 1915 only and did a whole lot of research there. And that really totally got me hooked on that subject. And I carried on with this research. And after my degree, I was working at the Royal Engineers Museum. That was my first job from like 1987. And one day, literally just kind of opening boxes at the National Archives, this class of chemical warfare records, W0142, released in 1968-69, so about 50 years after the war, were never catalogued in that you've just got like a list of file numbers and then it'll just say director of gas services files, medical files, and then you just have to order up a box and you see what you get. And one day I found a file that was describing something I'd never heard of, which were these chemical warfare operations in Russia in 1919. As well as being something I'd never heard of, they're also something that you don't often get in files, in archive files, which were a load of photographs as well. And it showed strange improvised bombs being held by a Royal Engineer officer. So this kind of got me hooked on the story. So it took me off at, at this tangent and I spent a year or so researching this and then and then published an article in the um, Imperial War Museum Review on these British chemical warfare operations in 1919. And it took me into a kind of whole, whole different world of the British military intervention in Russia as well, which is a whole different story with a lot of amazing characters. Really quite a bizarre episode uh, right at the end of the First World War and of course the beginning of, of the um, you know history of Soviet Russia as well. Let's, let's start with what on earth the British were doing in northern Russia in 1919, which is just you know, a year after the armistice. What's, what's going on there? Well, after the Russian Revolution and the, you know, the collapse of the old imperial Russian regime, Britain has a situation where uh, it's one of its main allies has collapsed. But also in trying to keep Russia in the war, Britain had been shipping a, a huge quantity of military supplies to Russia via the northern ports at Archangel and Murmansk. And Britain wanted these military supplies back, but also wanted perhaps to be able to intervene to prevent 
the Bolshevik regime keeping a, getting a, a grip on Russia. Uh, so in particular, Churchill, who is Minister for War, the end of the First World War, is keen on this intervention. But really, by the end of 1918, it's clear that they've got to get the guys out from northern Russia. So uh, the, the troops that have gone to, to try to rescue the supplies have them, uh, themselves in danger. And if they don't get them out by the end of 1919, they'll be iced in. So they send a, a North Russia relief expedition out in about um, the March, April uh, of 1919. And this force is made of a mixture of those who've served in the, in the First World War and don't want to stop fighting. So which, which is well, actually there was quite a few people like that. Uh, you might think that everyone just wanted to get away from the war. There were quite a few people that could have wanted to carry on, got a bit of a taste for it or weren't quite ready to go back to civilian life, but also quite a lot of conscripts as well, young soldiers who either thought they'd done their bit or um, hadn't even had any experience of the fighting and suddenly get sent, shipped off to North Russia. So there's a battalion of Royal Marines uh, who were like that. So it's a really strange mixture of troops that are being sent out to Russia in 1919. And of course, it's bizarre because the fact that many of these soldiers never really moved off full mobilization setting it was almost like a, an add-on to the, the first absolutely i mean we're just moving from this full-on war fighting mode and what's happened in the first world war is that britain has sort of transitioned from having a really tiny army that's 50 percent colonial police force into a massive you know million strong force that's capable of fighting the most modern effective warfare. There's been a revolution during the First World War in how you fight a war and modern warfare has been invented. It's become massively more destructive. And of course, as a major part of that, we've had the revolution in chemical weapons and the chemical warfare is integrated into this fighting. So a small sort of chunk of this massive British fighting force is plucked out and sent over to Russia and literally a kind of division's worth of troops, but a very effective fighting force is sent out to Russia. And also the British have an idea that there are a lot of troops in Russia that they can just with a bit of discipline and uh, equipment, put them in uniform and drill them and that they will fight effectively against this Bolshevik rabble. So the British think they can make a difference in, uh, in intervening. And so this is a full-scale war the UK are entangled in, isn't it? So, I mean, the Bolsheviks, are, I assume, have significant armament and they are, I mean, do they, do they have an air force? The forces that the, the British were encountering in North Russia are predominantly undeveloped, really, I think. There are some air forces, but the British will have air superiority. They have, you know, the Bolsheviks have artillery, but they're predominantly, I think, a sort of infantry and cavalry force. But that doesn't mean that they're not very, very formidable. I guess they have, they have a kind of moral force on their side that ultimately will be unstoppable. Moral force and just force of numbers, really. It's a really strange moment in history because the crucible of military technology had been so profound. So I think in 1919, you saw the last cavalry on cavalry sabre charge. In other contexts, you had aeroplanes. 
a lot of it is kind of experimental, right? They're improvising systems. In that sense, this era is a transition in so many different ways. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's for the British, it's a kind of interface between their colonial type of warfare, where they are sending out small numbers of troops who are maybe modernly equipped and trained out to uh, what you might call underdeveloped areas and in their own kind of mindset of the time, uncivilized areas. So the places that they would traditionally during the 19th century be going out to, but also you've got the modern aspect of it in terms of modern weapons, equipment, uh, organization. Um, and then I guess the third new element, which is the new world order that has come into being as a result of the First World War with the Bolshevik Revolution. And that's maybe that third element, the new world order is the thing that the British are really not equipped for or, or prepared for. I mean, things go quite pear shaped, really, in terms of the British intervention in North Russia. What the British think they can do with their own idea of their moral force, you know, the British, British force of character. Um, I think they think they can organise the Russians and really sort out the Bolsheviks. And it very quickly becomes apparent that they can't and that they're going to basically this this operation is just to get in and um, rescue their forces and get out again. That's the important part that chemical warfare plays, actually, in just playing for time, giving the forces um, space to evacuate. I mean, we're at a turning point in terms of British policy and chemical warfare. So in the First World War, you know, after the German gas attack, there's no question that Britain isn't going to use chemical weapons. It's just a case of what Britain can get invented. Now, that's the only limitation. So there isn't a kind of moral restraint. At the end of the First World War, there is a turning point. So there are those such as Churchill, a minister for his minister for war and air, who has a very pragmatic and in some ways quite sober attitude in that he kind of sees the hypocrisy of thinking that certain types of weapons, you know, what you might call conventional weapons, blowing people to pieces with high explosives is okay and chemical weapons are somehow not okay. So he does regard that as hypocrisy. But we're really into the to colonial policing for a lot of British armed forces um, activity. And you've got different factors. So the idea of using chemical weapons in India, for example, in 1919 undergoes a lot of scrutiny. And there are big questions as to whether Britain is going to use chemical weapons in India. And this has been very well researched because of the, the there has been a kind of widespread belief that Britain used chemical weapons in India in 1919. And this has been pretty much completely disproven. But at exactly the same time that the debate as to whether chemical weapons should be used in India, partly for counterinsurgency purposes and partly for defence of the, the empire of the, from the northern frontier from Afghanistan to Russia. At the exact same time, they're thinking about whether the British government and the War Office are thinking about whether to use chemical weapons in Russia. And there's kind of two questions as to the use of chemical weapons in Russia. First is, is it okay morally? And the War Office kind of quite quickly disposes of that by finding evidence that the Bolsheviks have fired a few gas shells at the British, uh, a few captured 
gestures. And the, the force commander in Archangel, General Ironside, signals back in February 1919 saying, I've got gas shell here. Basically, is it OK for me to use them? The Bolsheviks might have used some against me, but I'm not sure. And the War Office just reply and saying, no, and if he's used them, then you can use them. And they store that bit of information for later on when the question is asked in Parliament by an awkward radical MP who says, you know, why are we firing gas at the Bolsheviks? And the government have got the answer ready because they used it against us. So that's that. So that's fine. And Bolsheviks are not part of the British Empire. You know, there isn't the moral the moral problem or the fact of inflaming independence movements, for example, by using uh, sort of barbaric methods. There's another issue, this whole issue of laws of war as developed in the 19th century and having two kind of sets of sets of laws, warfare in civilized countries and warfare in so-called uncivilized countries. And this was a, you know, this was a sort of codified distinction. You can have different sets of laws, different sets of rules for international conduct, depending on your enemy. This kind of thing is getting quite, quite tricky, I think, in the post-First World War era. But I think once, once you persuade yourself that you're fighting an uncivilized enemy, then you can just switch. You do, really don't have to worry so much if you're fighting what you've decided is an uncivilized enemy. In, in the you know in the mindset of the time. So what's particularly interesting is the, the British had stockpiles uh, primarily of, of mustard and phosgene, I assume, and they would have had tear gases and other harassing agents available to them. But that wasn't what they employed. They didn't employ an almost conventional chemical weapon, which you know phosgene or, or mustard. They they went for something else. So during 1918. The British have developed a new chemical weapon. And this is, I think it's almost the only novel chemical weapon that the, that the British introduced. The British tend to be innovative in their means of delivery rather than in their substances. Now, in fact, this substance, they copied it from the Germans anyway. And it's, it's derived from German, what was called the Blue Cross that the Germans introduced in July 1917. This is fairly successful for the Germans, but maybe not as successful as they think it is. And the concept of the Blue Cross shell was that it wasn't a lethal chemical agent. It wasn't a gas. It was actually a kind of solid, arsenic-based solid that had to be pulverised by the detonation of a high explosive shell and would form a very fine dust. And that very fine dust would penetrate gas mask filters. It would cause sneezing, choking, sinus pain, and it would cause the wearer to have to take off his mask. And then he would succumb to lethal gas, i.e. phosgene, being used at the same time. So they referred to this type of chemical agent as a mask breaker. And the point was that, um, you know, they weren't themselves lethal, but they would cause you to succumb to a, a, another chemical agent. Of course, there's a, a range of these because I think it's easy to forget that there are so many dozens and dozens of candidate agents either identified provisionally or actually you know experimented on in laboratories or even field tested for various purposes this mask breaker was one of these yeah we tend to think of maybe just sort of you know maybe three or so chemical agents 
And at the time, it was really, there were so many of them that the, the combatants had to try and simplify it. So the Germans had their kind of color coding to try to, uh, to try to simplify this huge number. So yeah, the British had, had um, a little bit before that had, uh, had introduced chloropicrin uh, with the same principle, uh, or st stannic chloride rather, um, and um, had started to introduce um, a sort of additional filters, cloth filters that will remove these from the air so that they've got the additional backup. So it was as simple as putting some, I assume, basically a sock over the end of the mask to reduce the filters. Yeah, I mean, the, getting into the filter. yeah, I mean, the German method was literally to put a bit of cloth over the filter and screw in the filter with the cloth over it. The British had a more uh, sort of more fancy um, cheesecloth, little box with cheesecloth that the, the soldiers had to strap over their respirator at first, and then they incorporated it into the filter. So it was, um, yeah, these Blue Cross shells were, were not hugely successful, but like a lot of chemical weapons, you don't know if they're going to work or not until you actually use them in the field. And also, you can imagine if you're at the front, been told, well, we don't think your gas mask is as efficient as it could be at making you feel breathless mm. and exhausted all the time. So we're going to put an extra layer of filtering on there for you. I mean, it, you know, I mean, the, there's the whole effect of chemical weapons in the First World War of just making life more miserable for soldiers and uncomfortable and unpleasant. And it, um, yeah, I mean, if, if, if there's something that means that the breathing resistance is even greater in your gas mask, it's adding to the, the reduction of fighting effectiveness. So the British obviously know the Germans are doing this. And one day in about September 1917, one of the officers of the British Gas Services Directorate in France, in a place called Saint-Omer in France, is pondering on this, this chemical. And he takes a pinch of the Blue Cross chemical that the Germans include in their shells, this arsenic, and he puts it on the stove in his room this is another story of British ingenuity. <laughs> exactly. I, I had to, I'm sorry to stop you, but this is, this seems to be a recurrent theme, not only in the history of chemical warfare, of someone going, right then. Well, yeah, I wonder what will happen if I, I put thought, this highly toxic arsenic on the stove in my room. <laughs> I mean, I think this is pre-Netflix. So, I mean, it was this or reading a book in the dark. So I guess... It was obviously what you're going to do in the hotel room. You've got <laughs> you've got a Bunsen burner. Exactly. And a... There was nothing to do in the evening. I was bored. <laughs> I opened up a German gas shell and I put the contents on my stove. So, so we're in Saint Omer, and it's Henry Sisson. Is that? Oh, I've said Sisson, that yeah, it's Henry Sisson. Yeah. Um, so they put a pinch of this stuff yes, on the stove. On the stove, and it it produces this smoke. And the smoke is so, well, I mean, toxic, but it's actually so painful. It causes this, uh, this pain to the sinuses. It causes choking and coughing. That it causes not only, he has to leave the room, but it causes the evacuation of the entire building just from a, you know, a pinch of this smoke. Popular guy then. <laughs> well, kind of he is, because his boss, who is Charles Fulkes, who is in charge of British Offensive Chemical Warfare Programme, immediately sees that this could be the way to really use this chemical, not in the kind of rather clumsy way that the Germans have been trying to, in to kind of pulverise it by blowing it up so you get a very fine dust that goes in your gas mask, because the British knew that the dust wasn't fine enough to really work. Instead of trying to make it into a dust, you make it into a smoke. 
by heating it, you've really got an effective way. And they tried their own gas mask, even with the uh, even with the add-on filter in this smoke, and the smoke penetrated it. And the wearer, anyone wearing the mask, had to tear it off immediately because of the choking. It's so great. So they've got the holy grail by with this smoke, and the holy grail is the chemical that will penetrate your enemy's gas mask. Whereas you know you you can equip your troops with a new kind of gas mask that will protect against it. Um, and you've got a window of opportunity where your uh, your enemy's gas masks can be penetrated. And so if we put ourselves in the positions of those at Porton, I mean, from the reading I've done from 1916 onwards, there was a real push to identify war winning agents. Yeah. The, the war winning idea was particularly sort of US, but in Europe it was more, it was seen as a kind of combination combined arms type weapon. And the war ends. And so for this then to drop on someone's kind of desk as a potential agent that you may have been looking for during the war, it must have been an opportunity that felt too good to pass up in, in some ways. I think so. Yeah. I mean, they've they've spent, you know, 1918 really developing this the means of using this. They've developed a, a means of heating it in a, a what they call a thermogenerator. So you've got this um, a sort of foot long cylinder. You know, like a sort of uh, very elongated baked bean tin, where you pull a striker and it heats the the arsenic. They call it uh, the M device, and they've improved the arsenic substance. They discover as, as a variant to what the Germans are using that's easy to produce, which the British call DM. The Americans identify at the same time simultaneously and call it Adamsite, and it's often better known as Adamsite by uh, Roger Adams in the scientist. So Adamsite, the Adamsite thermogenerator, ready for use. We've got a factory in Morecambe in Lancashire, making this, uh, maybe 100,000 of them or more ready for the attack. And then, you know, the war ends. So they've got this weapon. The question arises, OK, shall we send it to North Russia? So in that early period post-war, I think this is in part why you see, if you look at magazines and newspapers from this immediately post-First World War, there's lots of chemical warfare service individuals obviously speaking up their organisation and saying how important it is to continue investing in this area. Mm-hmm. There's also an emphasis on spin-offs, like this idea that these chemical warfare services in peacetime have really important functions. It points to the idea that there would likely have been people who would have been very eager to see a post-First World War success with a cutting-edge chemical munition. Yes, but of course, this weapon, the M device, has been developed very much with the problem of the Western Front in mind. It's been developed as a weapon that can be used in a theatre of war where the prevailing wind is westerly. So the prevailing wind is blowing from the west to the east, conveniently towards the Germans. And it's also a theatre of war, which is sort of open agricultural farmland. It's been cleared of its um, thick forests many centuries before. So the question is whether they take it to Russia is kind of moot because it's a completely different theatre of war. And so they ask the war office when they've told Ironside, Archangel, yes, you know, use chemical weapons. Ironside says, OK, I'd like this, this and this. I'd like the Livins projector. I'd like the Stokes mortar, etc. You know, I'd like gas shells for the, you know, 4.5 inch howitzer, etc. And the Royal Force say, OK, we're going to send you some of those, but we're going to send you a new weapon. It's a new gas. 
and it's very secret and you should only use it if you really, really have to. And he replies and saying, OK, well, that's great. How does it work in country where it's really thickly wooded and there's not much wind? <laughs> and basically the war officer says, OK, we'll get back to you on that. And they say, OK, we're going to send out an expert who will advise you on this. And the expert is actually a very experienced special brigade officer. This is the, the, the officers that were carrying out British gas attacks, who has also been very closely involved in this 1918 development at home, he had to he had to leave France because he'd inhaled a lot of chlorine gas as part of his service. It affected his health. So he's the, he's the perfect expert on this weapon, and he really believes, well, he believed that it could have won the war. So he's he's eager for an opportunity to to use it. He's about to go out to Russia. This is in March of 1919, and he has an accident. It gets run over by a taxi in London. So he can't go out. So the war office ends up sending 50,000 of the end device thermogenerators out to Ironside in May of 1919 without having checked whether it will actually work in North Russia. And these were field trials, but not used at scale, right? So they, yes. they would have been tried out at the port and testing range, yes. and then there would have been other. I see yep. larger trials. Yes, so they try them at Porton, and there's a reference to them sweeping over the kind of farms around the area. They, they also try a big trial in France. The French have got a testing area in the Rhone River estuary, in the south of France, uh, on Pressan, and they try 2,000 generators. And as usual with these trials, basically, if the wind's blowing in the right direction at the right speed, then it'll work. So it, you know, it just happened that the wind was blowing in the right direction at the right speed. Uh, so it seemed okay, if you see what I mean. And of course, this whole question of the the country and the fact that it doesn't work in a thickly wooded area really it kind of got missed. And there's also a real problem in that one of the people who are advising in the Ministry of Munitions claims to know the area around Archangel and says. Um, I'm going to quote you what he says. He says, artillery is not likely to be much good. There's far too much forest, but gas would, I think, drift along very nicely. Um, and he's just like 100% wrong, this guy, Sir Keith Price, and who unfortunately his, his opinion uh, seems to have held weight. So they got really bad advice from the war office without taking really any notice of the people on the spot. And Ironside actually had, a, had someone who, who knew about, well, Ironside knew about gas, uh, gas warfare. They ignore the advice from the spot from Archangel and they send out the generator. And you do get the feeling that they really, really wanted to use it and they got it. And they were saying, well, we got it. We might as well use it, basically. And the surprise is going to go sooner or later. Other countries are going to realise we've got this. We might as well use it. So let's send it out. So by July 1919, Thomas Davies, he's the expert. He's recovered from his being run over by the taxi. He arrives in North Russia and he's got 19 other officers, many of which he's, he's worked closely with already before in, in France on the Western Front, who are all specialist gas attack officers. And they arrive and he goes out to look at the look at the area, look at the countryside and assess whether he can use the M device and what other chemical weapons he can use. And he finds that, yes, actually it is thickly wooded and that 
<laughs> just the whole area is these thick forests and literally the only places where there aren't forests are where there are little villages where obviously there are people living civilians living and also where railway lines have been driven down so so running north from archangel there's a railway line and running north from murmansk there's a railway line and you've got literally 30 yard wide 30 meter wide strips that have been cleared through the, the trees and the fighting actually follows these fronts it follows what they call the railway front down from archangel and it also follows uh, rivers as well so you've got the river fronts and the railway fronts um, so it's so, exactly opposite how it was field trialed the, the kind of setup yeah, yeah and all we have so far is a vague reassurance from a we assume a quite plummy sounding officer class gentleman who went it'll be fine <laughs> I have a sense of these things. <laughs> yes, exactly. Somebody, I mean, Sir Keith Price, actually, I'm not sure of Sir Keith Price's background. He may have been an industrialist. Um, either way, uh, he wasn't a soldier and he hadn't got experience of carrying out gas attacks. It's not enough experience. So Davis has got this dilemma. He's got these 50,000 generators. He has also brought with him other chemical weapons. They have brought some Livins projectors, which are these gas mortars and, and the Stokes mortars, other types of mortars. Um, but as they're unloaded from the ships, they realise that things have been so chaotic at the other end when they've been uh, putting them on the ship that they've missed off vital parts. Like they haven't got the base plates for them and they haven't, they've forgotten, you know, they've got the mortars, but they've forgotten the bombs. None of them are usable. The only thing you can use are these, the, the M device the thermogenerators. So he persuades the, the Ironside that he should try a small scale attack, like a raid really, with a, uh, an infantry battalion of 800 men maybe, and he'll try just a smaller number. So instead of using 50,000, which might have been a, a sort of five mile wide front attack, He'll try it on a much smaller front on this, you know, the sort of 30 yard wide railway front. So they decide they'll try this, what they call a raid um, for several weeks. They prepare, they has to train the troops because the, the way that they use the, the, the M device is that you'll, the infantry will have one, each, have two each of these, these generators and they'll be kind of lined up ready for the attack. But when the wind's blowing towards the enemy, each man lights one of the generators, chucks them as far as he can in front of them. Um, and lets it burn, the smoke burns for about three uh, minutes, uh, and then and then he lights another one, chucks it, um, and then after that they advance uh, and capture the position. Now, I'm not a, a military expert, and I obviously have no, no battlefield experience, but the idea of going from a situation where you're not really weather-dependent to being entirely weather-dependent for a relatively small operation must have been something that I can imagine actually caused headaches for those involved in, in putting this together. So it suggests that there must have been some additional push from outside for this to be happening, because I can't see, mm -hmm. unless there was a, a faith that this would actually be something that would make their lives easier down the line yeah. or... I mean, so Fuchs, um, Charles Fuchs, who was you know in charge of British Chemical Warfare Services, Obviously, he wasn't in Russia, but he has kind of created the sort of modus operandi, I suppose, of his special brigade, because 
all the time he's using chemical weapons in the British waters in France, he's had to fight a sort of propaganda battle to persuade commanders to use his own weapons. And um, he's constantly had to gather evidence of how effective they were and uh, persuade generals that they should be using gas. So his own officers are in this mode. So Davies is in kind of um, salesman mode with the chemical weapons. Now, Ironside is uh, is probably semi-converted, but it's still up to Davies to persuade these commanders that they're going to use his product. And the battalion commander of the 2nd Hampshires, who is a very formidable personality, John Sherwood Kelly is one of the Victoria Cross on the Western Front. He is, is already kind of, well, he's both uh, sort of fed up, I suppose, with the situation in Russia. I think he's also quite mentally unstable as well. But anyway, John Sherwood Kelly basically writes a letter to Ironside refusing to use the M device. He says, it's, uh, he says these raids are unnecessary. There's no point. We don't need to raid the Bolsheviks. We've got, you know, prisoners coming in, giving us information about their strength and all that sort of thing. He sees through this raid and he realises it's just an excuse to try out the chemical weapon. Uh, and he says he's not going to let his men be subjected to that. So he has to be replaced. <laughs> so <laughs> it's kind of things very quickly unravel. And Dave is also just realised after several weeks that it's not going to work. The wind is non-existent. And if you've got a non-existent wind, you can't use a chemical weapon that's wind dependent and exposes the fatal flaw of the M device as Fawkes had envisaged it. And Fawkes thought this was going to win the war. He thought that his special brigade were going to win the war on the Western Front. The war had ended. So they are, you know, they're trying to use it and it's got this fatal flaw. It's still wind dependent. And they also, as I understand, I mean, this was a, a small military operation, but one that was I assume, has significant attention from the UK leadership, you know, War Office, Winston Churchill. So, and he, we know, or at least we, from what we've reconstructed in the historical record, as you say, was a pragmatist when it comes to gas warfare. Also, I think it's probably not unfair to say he was not a fan of the Bolsheviks. Yes. And um, so did he have a espoused view specifically on the issue of whether chemical weapons should be employed against them when they're when they're debating as to whether to send it out he says i should very much like the bolsheviks to have it but then he raises the objection as to whether it's worth giving away the secret for such a small use ultimately he is persuaded by others in the war office that they should send it out so yeah he's got no issue about using it and no he's uh, yes you're right he's no he's not a fan of the bolsheviks but yes they are because this is the the main advance. It's the main front advance. And in fact, in a sense, they're kind of holding up the advance by trying to use the smoke instead of the conventional means. So, you know, the literary professionals have done time memorable, time immemorable. They've pushed on and got up with it. Yes. And so we then see attempts yeah. to employ yeah. these weapons. So the use in its conventional sense with the infantrymen chucking it and allowing the wind to drift, drift it forward, fails. So Davies has got to find another way of using it. And he's, he's undeterred. He's really determined to use this weapon. He believes that it's got big potential. So he starts modifying the M devices to turn them into bombs that he can drop out of aircraft. 
because he thinks, OK, if I haven't got the wind, then I'll drop them directly onto the Bolsheviks so that we don't have to worry about the wind. They, he starts designing fins and a uh, like a nose cone, padded nose cone, so that they can drop them out of the aircraft without the without the generators being damaged. And his servant, so officers, you know, all army officers have a servant. And in the Royal Engineers, uh, all sappers have a trade. They all have a particular skill. His servant happens to be a plumber. So he can uh, he can make things out of tin plate. You know, he can make things out of, uh, of metal. So his servant starts manufacturing the, the, the fins. But then Davis finds that the Royal Air Force in Archangel refused to allow their aircraft to be used for testing out these rather dangerous gadgets. So he has to go to Ironside. Ironside overrules them and um, he gets the trials. Then after they, they make about 20 flights, trying out the different designs, chucking and they're using the real the real thing. Chucking out these um, thermo generators, trying to avoid the civilians around um, around the villages. They crash. He crashes and has quite nasty injuries. He cuts his arms and he gets the arsenic, the DM, into it, into the wounds, causing nasty eruptions. So anyway, the RAF now say, no, we told you <laughs> this is this is <laughs> this is a stupid idea. Um, and Davis is still not deterred. He manages to carry on making test flights by using aircraft that are being assembled at Archangel. These are these are all, all on the, the, the stores that had been shipped out by the British, includes aircraft that are in packing cases, and these are being assembled and tested. So they're being flown around Archangel to, to make sure they fly. So, so he manages to use those flights, but they have to empty out the arsenic and replace it with brick dust. So his officers have to do that. It's a really unpleasant job. So anyway, they carry on and eventually he does perfect his bomb and he gets workshops in Archangel, military workshops and naval workshops to make up the bombs. Eventually they do make, they make one and a half thousand of these bombs that he's designed. So he's designed a working aircraft bomb. So he's in fact almost, not quite by accident, he's changed sort of British government policy. He has created a working aerial chemical weapon in the field. And Ironside gives him the go ahead to use it and they plan to use it on the next attack, 10th of August 1919, on this uh, railway front at Archangel. What I think is interesting, and I would love to have been a fly on the wall at sort of the RAF field HQ when they're discussing the prospect. I imagine chemical warfare was not the favourite thing with the RAF service anyway, especially as a competing service coming out of the First World War. But to have this individual who basically seems to be working with their own, it's their project and they're going to get it done. I mean, certainly if we look at the attempts in the interwar year with things like mustard, some, if you're a pilot, <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't want this stuff on your on your plane. You didn't want the risk of, of it going off during a flight. You didn't want the risk of you crashing somewhere and it engulfing you. So plus as well, I mean, these they were dropping conventional munitions anyway, which they were practiced in doing, yeah. and which did the job. Yes. I mean, the, the within official records, you, you know, you only occasionally get the, um, you know, the sort of more informal views, if you see what I mean. I was actually, when I was doing this research in the early 1990s, uh, I found 
a pilot who had dropped these bombs, who was still alive in the Channel Islands, and corresponded with him and asked him sort of various questions, including what was there were were there any sort of moral objections to the bombs? And he said none, none whatsoever, no objections that I, that I remember at all. Um, and I think from that, so from the kind of moral point of view, these soldiers uh, and airmen were kind of immersed in the in the war fighting of the Western Front. You know, chemical weapons had been a kind of had been the, the, the become the norm. Um, but I think there's very much the issues would have been to do with demarcation and the fact that the RAF already had their role and they were all you know already struggling to fulfil their proper role in terms of you know artillery spotting uh, etc maybe and, and some ground attack they were doing ground attack tactical ground attacks but yes as you say someone coming in from another arm and the RAF is fighting for its identity fighting for its individual identity it's not been in, in existence for very long so it would have been pretty galling and then of course they're overall by side and they have to go along with it so Davis doesn't really talk in his in his official you know reports about obstruction as such, but you can see that it's there and you can see that he's struggling. On the other hand, a lot of people help him. He gets things done. Uh, and his main problem when he's all set to use the weapon in August 1919 is is the weather. And in fact, the weather's too bad for flying. And this is, you know, this is a constant anyway. So it's not just uh, chemical weapons that are weather dependent. It's, other, you know, it's, uh, um, it's flying as well. So bad weather goes on for a couple of weeks. So it's not till the end of August that they can use them. And they drop them and they're incorporated into attack. It's an attack by Russian anti-Bolshevik forces that the British have, have organised and equipped. But we do, there are British forces attacking with them, but it happens to be Russian forces. And they drop approximately 60 at a go. The aircraft carry, I think, about 24 each, roughly. Some of them are in the cockpit, and then they have racks for some of them on the outside. But each bomb has to be dropped by the observer in the aircraft individually. He has to uh, kind of pull a striker to light the bomb and then chuck it out the side of the, of the cockpit. So there's no kind of bomb release mechanism. So each one has to be individually lit and dropped and they have to fly quite low. But generally, the British have got that sort of air superiority. They do lose uh, aircraft to, to anti-aircraft fire, but they have uh, generally got air superiority. So about 60 at a time, they drop on two villages and the airmen report that the you get a good cloud of smoke. The town they drop them on, the town they drop them on gets obscured by smoke. They can see panicked troops running into the surrounding woods um, and they repeat it the next day another 60 or 70 on each target and they find that they can capture the positions after they've gassed them um, and the initial uses are successful and that that sets the pattern really for the ensuing weeks of the campaign they're using it in comparatively small uses. I mean, nothing like the tens of thousands being lit simultaneously that had been envisaged. They're using it on these isolated positions and villages, and then they're capturing them, and quite large numbers of Bolsheviks are surrendering as a result. So that, as I understand it, so of course this would have also impacted civilians who would be very unlikely to have had gas masks. Yeah. 
did the Bolsheviks have have defences for this? I mean, had been an expectation that the British would employ chemical weapons? Yeah, there's very little uh, actually reference to uh, Bolsheviks having gas masks. Early on, Ironside tells the War Office that there's that they haven't got much protection, and if they have got masks, they'll be the sort of imperial Russian design, which was the kind of 1916 generation of, of respirator, which wouldn't have had any protection whatsoever against the uh, against the M device. So effectively, no, they've got they've got no protection at all. So. Davies organises a very detailed questioning of any prisoners he can find. And this is very much the way that Special Brigade were operating on the Western Front. They are trying to get as much information of the of the effectiveness of chemical weapons as possible. And British intelligence are, are sort of working on this anyway. But Davies is really keen to find the evidence. And I mean, there's two reasons. Obviously, it's it's effectively a field trial of the M device. So it's, it's very valuable information as to the uh, effect of the weapon. But he's also doing what Fawkes had trained his men to do in France, which is to gather as much information as you can of how good your chemical weapons are as part of that internal propaganda within the, within the British army so that uh, everyone can see how good chemical weapons are. To, to fight against the, the natural disinclination to use chemical weapons. So there are, in the archives, there are getting on for 50 accounts from different named prisoners as to the effects of the M device on them. So in, in um, the article I wrote, I just quoted a couple of them, but there's, there's, there's numerous ones. I could quote you maybe one of them. Um, we got um, Private Leposhkin, who, um, four bombs fell near him, but one about 10 yards away, caused him head pains, watering eyes, a sore throat, breathing difficulties, copious vomiting. And he said he was unable to stand. He lay down and was carried into a barracks. And he found that sickness and coughing prevented him from sleeping. And he surrendered three days later. And that's kind of typical. So coughing, head pains, um, but also um, a sort of psychological impact. Another man said that he, he surrendered because he found that he was now too, he was now very frightened of shell fire. And the Blue Cross shells in France had also had a kind of psychological dimension to the effect. It caused a sort of intense feeling of depression. And this had been observed in Porton as well in 1918 uh, on human subjects when they tested it. They found as well as the intense pain and at Porton, they said that the pain was so intense that this smoke could cause in the sinuses that, that men had to be restrained from trying to kill themselves. Um, but also it left them with a feeling of, of hopeless misery as well. Of course, it's worth remembering that, I mean, these you get reports from places like Porton, which did experiments on healthy squaddies, basically, yes. who, who then report but to already be in a conflict situation in a remote part of northern Russia. Probably yes. may, may have been in, in in the field for a very long period of time, and then all on top of all that, to then suddenly be exposed. You know, your your health is probably perilously close to the edge anyway, both mentally and, and sort of physically. And then on top of that, to have something that knocks you for six, like this, physiologically and psychologically, it's no wonder that this, in those sort of desperate situations, is mm -hmm. has a profound impact on the yes. on the troops. 
yes yeah so so it's very effective and um in the in the official records there's not much about british soldiers being affected by it there are as they as they continue the attacks they do issue warnings to the attackers to, to tell them to avoid sort of cellars and not to drink water avoid skin contact with earth where the bombs have dropped but it's very effective and always they basically always capture the positions where they use the bombs and they always get large numbers of prisoners coming in what i found interesting in the in the, some of the nomenclature around this type of agent is the fact it's a diverse range of effects which now it's commonly referred to as you know less le- non-lethal or less than lethal but the effects are incredibly wide-ranging in terms of the physiological effects so i mean some people you see it referred to as a vomiting agent but also at the same time it's a harassing agent it's a, it has a it impacts the eyes it impacts the, the the chest and so it must have been incredibly overwhelming to be to be struck by that uh, particularly if you weren't hadn't been expecting expecting that agent yes yeah and it's i mean we've obviously moved on completely moved on from the idea of the mask breaker as well it's become a weapon in its own right there's a general assumption that it's not that it doesn't cause permanent injury and the war office one of the other things that they debate before they send out the m device device to russia as well as you know do we want to give away the secret is what about the effect on civilians because obviously this this area, although it's, it's sparsely populated, it's dotted with villages and every target is really in effect, they're capturing a village. And there's a, uh, a statement in the War Office uh, file. It's unsigned. I think it's, uh, it's by um, General Harrington, the Deputy Chief of uh, Imperial General Staff, who says, well, we know that this, this weapon doesn't have permanent effects. And also we never hesitated in France to use more lethal agents on account of causing harm to civilians that I don't see why we should hear, which kind of took me up short, really, because I hadn't seen that said so explicitly. And I'm actually not aware of bad civilian casualties being caused by British chemical weapons. Um, we know about German mustard gas causing a lot of civilian casualties around Armentier, for example. Um, so it seems that the War Office weren't bothered about civilian casualties at uh, with, with the M device, and partly, but not entirely, because they believed that it had temporary uh, effects only. Now, the sort of re- one result of using the M device and using Adamsite in the field was that the British began to see longer impacts from it, lasting sort of months rather than um, just uh, you know a few hours. Um, but for their purposes, it seems to be a very sort of short-term weapon, and it's also really effective. So so Davis reports to Ironside and then a new general comes in to oversee the whole evacuation because that's the point of these attacks, just to, to buy time for the evacuation. General Rawlinson arrives and he says he says that this is proof that the smoke generator is an extraordinarily powerful weapon. And Ironside says that they're a great success. He says that they're local um, and he says that the, the moral effect, i.e. psychological effect, um, is very great and materially assisted the operation. So it's, it's really working. So this is an attributed Winston Churchill quote, so normal caveats apply here. Um, but there's obviously been occasionally, apparently there's been work that's looked at him and his relationship to chemical warfare. And as you say, I think pragmatism probably best characterises it. Um, but 
he, I think this interesting tension between, on the one hand, highlighting with evidence how effective this weapon system is in the field and how powerful it is. On the other hand, you have remarks from people like Churchill saying, well, you know, this is a sne- referring to things like this as not sneezing agents, as de-emphasizing yes. the lethality of these agents in some contexts to emphasize how, as you say, the hypocrisy of talking about conventional versus non-conventional weapons. And so yes. some really interesting rhetorical games played around these types of weapons in this era that we have to be careful of. Absolutely. I mean, there's a there's a quite often quoted uh, minute by Churchill, and I think he's he's referring yeah, it's possibly referring to India, or maybe at the same time, it's also referring to Russia, saying how about the hypocrisy, isn't he? That that you know, we'll we'll blow someone to pieces uh, and think that's okay, and we'll you know cause them to sneeze or cough, and then think that's uh, that's morally repugnant. Yes, you're right. He is diminishing the impact of chemical weapons, and it's. I think we do have to be really careful. If you're saying that a weapon that temporarily incapacitates somebody and makes him ill for six months and causes him to surrender, you could maybe say that is a more humane weapon. And that's the argument of people that would argue in favour of tear gas. You know, JBS Holding in in the interwar period is is saying that tear gas is the most humane weapon ever invented. Um, But I think we are now more aware of longer term effects of chemical weapons. And actually, the North Russia incident is uh, is a useful one for that because they use, they continue using it in Russia. They they ship them over to the Murmansk front, do the same thing all over again with seaplanes, um, dropping them onto um, more targets to cover the evacuation also from Murmansk. And they pull out, really pulled out by the middle of October. They leave a small stock of the M device for Russian troops. They think the, the, the anti-Bolshevik Russians are going to carry on fighting. And they don't. They almost immediately collapse to the Bolsheviks. Uh, the British have dumped 47,000 of the M devices into the White Sea. So the vast bulk of those M devices that were shipped out, you know, all but 3,000, were were dumped into the White Sea. I think in this episode, I think on this show, we will have we have to have an episode which basically just lists agents dumped into the sea because I think every every story we seem to have had so far. Uh, either took from special from guest specials or, or books I read recently seems to have at least one component where tens of tons were were dumped insert sea here. I um, think you could well yes I mean you could argue that the the biggest victim of chemical weapons has been the, the sea yeah I mean more far more chemical weapons have been deployed against the sea than they have against um, uh, against people potentially and they go home but what I found in research when i started looking into the personal files of davies and his officers is that there was a longer term impact of the m device so i wasn't able to follow up the um you know medical histories of those those bolsheviks but i found that from from davies and their medical histories they're they're all to some degree affected by it and they'd all at some stage accidentally inhaled it so especially when they're trying to demonstrate it to the the russian anti-bolshevik the white russian commander before leaving it seems that typically special brigade officers they were careless about protecting themselves and so you know, it looks like the wind changed or something during a during a demonstration and they all accidentally inhaled the load of uh, smoke so one of them 
described how he quickly suffered pains in his legs and legs, head and back, and then extreme debility, anemia, diarrhea. And three months later, he couldn't lie down without feeling giddy. Another one was in hospital for four months afterwards on return to, to Britain. Davies himself, so he's come back in, in, in October 1919. March 1920, he's inspected by a medical board and they describe him as pale, nervous and suffering from various phobias. He would like to go back to Australia, but dare not go on board ship. So it's, it's got this psychological impact on him. It does seem to have worn off. Davies does go back, back to his native Tasmania and have a, have a successful um, uh, successful life there. But it's, I guess it's these unexpected results that you always get from chemical weapons. You never quite know how they're going to behave in the field. You know, it's a strange story, isn't it? And it does go in a direction that certainly it wasn't intended to. It was never intended to be used in this way. And it found this sort of turning point. You know, Britain was very much at a turning point in 1919 with chemical weapons. This little interlude, I don't think it really, it didn't really help with colonial policing. It didn't really help with the decision making, making in India. It's difficult to know how it fed into British policy because we are at the point when the spectre of chemical weapons used from aircraft begins to develop, I think, aren't we? And whether awareness of this use in Russia, small, local, but successful, fed into that, I don't know, because I haven't really found those connections within, within the British records. And my own research hasn't taken me into the interwar period enough to know. But I would suspect that it is. It's a kind of spark that makes them think, OK, this is this is the way it's going to go. Well, I, I think that was a really nice way of bringing us to a close in terms of, of this episode. I, I, I got a lot out of that, that story. I think, as you say, that this period immediately post First World War, there's a hell of a lot happening, um, which I think reflects obviously profound global shifts happening at this time, but also the the reorganisation of militaries and the competition between different arms of the militaries and, and these technologies where some, some seem to have been almost instantly abandoned to the dustbin of history and others gained a life, particularly this idea of advocacy on one level being a, a, a big reason that these survived post-First World War, um, where there was no immediate threat, but also the, the fact that you have sunk costs, people have put significant amounts of professional and personal energy into yes. developing weapon systems and they have their pet projects and they want to see them used and mm. the other thing is of course you have tools there so you you wait till a job appears for it um so yeah i think that was that was a fascinating uh, talk so thank you so much for coming on today and, and having a chat with me just before we go i guess um if people want to i mean i came across your work on your, your wonderful website um, because i know you collate their various papers and histories you've written uh, around the First World War. So where can people go yes. to kind of read more of your stuff? Yes, so it's it's simonjoneshistorian.com, isn't it, my, uh, my website. Um, so yes, go to, go to the kind of, that'll take you to the front page and scroll down and you'll find um, the various um, things that I've written, various things about chemical warfare and uh, other subjects as well. You will find a link to the original Imperial War Museum review article that I wrote on this North Russia including the various references as well. So if you, you know, if you want to find the National Archives references, etc., um, you'll find them in that article. Wonderful. Well, I'll, I'll link all of that 
uh, in the show notes so mm-hmm. people can go in and take a dig into this. And um, oh, I guess what was left to say is, Simon, thank you so much for, for coming on today. It's been a real pleasure. OK, thank you. It's, it's been great to talk about it and great to kind of revisit research that I did a very long time ago and to come back to it again and, uh, and talk about it again. Thank you, Brett.